I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. She had hair like Jeannie Shrimp, turned back in 30 years ago. It's true. A lot of time has passed, but time has not diminished the power of that song. That is, of course, Behind the Wall of Sleep by The Smithereens, which features my guest today on the program, Mike Massaros. Let me tell you a little bit about The Smithereens and Mike Massaros. Bass players and drummers, said John Densmore of The Doors, are brothers in the basement cooking up the groove that makes people move. Well, in the case of the Smithereens, he couldn't be more on the nose. The legendary New Jersey Outfits bass player and drummer, Mike Massaros and Dennis Deacon, respectfully, pretty much were brothers by the time they joined the band. They went to grade school together, and their shared experience of growing up gave them an unspoken musical language and synergy that can only come through such an organic beginning. And not only that, but when those two dudes lock in... And you can pretty much hear all that locking in on any Smithereens track. It gave the Smithereens the power, the muscle, and the groove. In other words, they were the guys that made people move. Now, the Smithereens kind of exploded overnight with their Especially For You album back in 1986. But, to be fair, there was nothing overnight about their success. By the time they made it, they'd been at it for years. Although they had been playing in bands since around the mid-70s or so, The Smithereens got their start in 1980, inspired by Buddy Holly, The Clash, Ocean's Eleven, the iconography of Bogart films, and Mod Pop. The Smithereens tore out of Carteret, New Jersey with a growing songbook that was explosive, introspective, and undeniably catchy. Led by a muscular, jangling, rhythmic attack, along with the rippling vocals of singer Pat Denizio, you pretty much couldn't mess with The Smithereens. They knocked out a string of hits like A Girl Like You, Blood and Roses, In a Lonely Place, Yesterday Girl, and House We Used to Live In. And they collaborated with everyone from Suzanne Vega to Lou Reed to Belinda Carlisle. They toured the world on their own and with the likes of Tom Petty and Graham Parker. They sold tons of records. They were all over MTV and they were the last band to play Greenwich Village's Bleecker Street nightclub. 
Their 12 studio albums, which includes classics like Green Thoughts and Eleven, also includes a Christmas album, a cover of the Beatles' 1964 concert in D.C., and a cover of the Who's Tommy album. Although Denizio died in 2017, the band has soldiered on, with Marshall Crenshaw and the Gin Blossoms' Robin Wilson handling vocal duties when the band plays live. All right, I think you're up to date. Uh, I should mention this. Coinciding with their 40th year in existence, the Smithereens, along with Southside Johnny and Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin, will be inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame Sunday, October 27th at the Paramount Theater on the Asbury Park, New Jersey boardwalk. All right, now you're really up to date. Uh, look, I love the Smithereens, and I was really excited to have this conversation with Mike. He's a player of tremendous dexterity, soul, and groove. And the fact is, he's one of my favorite bass players ever. He brings to the instrument a kind of refined athleticism that's both raw and classic. And it turns out, he's one hell of a nice guy. We get right into it. This is a good one. Get comfortable, pour a drink, turn off your phone, and get to know Mike Maceros right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I had an accordion, like a, a musical aptitude test when I was a child. And um, it was like back in the days where there was door-to-door salesmen. And like this guy was from a music school. And I I did the 10-question test with him. And then he, conf- he got confused. He said to my parents, well... He got the easy ones wrong and the hard ones right. (laughs) That's about it, you know? Yeah. Is, is that a way to sum up, uh, sum up who you are? Um, maybe I never thought about it before. You know, (laughs) I hadn't thought about that in many years until I had just said that to you, you know? Yeah. You're good at the hard stuff. It's the, it's the easy stuff that, uh, that is the trickiest. Probably. Yeah. They're one of those weird, weirdly wired brains, you know. <laughs> um, I have been listening to Ginger Baker the last two days nonstop. Oh, uh, oh, uh, man! Was, my heart was broken yesterday morning when I found out. I mean, you know, I, I would imagine that he's a guy that you must have listened to growing up. Well, Cream, yeah, for sure. Right? You I mean. Know. Jack Bruce? What what was your take on him? Jack Bruce, my take on him was he was a real innovator and he he was uh almost I mean this is personal preference, but he was almost on a level of John Entwistle, although more blues oriented. Yeah. I, I was listening to Baker and I thought, okay, so Jack Bruce must have been a real ass kicker to be able to, you know, play with lock in with uh, Ginger Baker. He Jack Bruce was a monster. He was. He was one of the greats of the instrument, and um, I learned contrary motion from him. Uh, you know, like when the uh, when the guitar player is playing a progression that goes up uh, within the same chord progression, you uh, same key though, you play going down, mm. and the, you know we we've done that in numerous one of uh, our songs. Now you got that from Jack Bruce. Is the relationship between the bass player and the drummer 
is that the primary relationship in terms of the framework of a song or is it with the guitar player um for a bass for me personally yeah it's 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 with the drummer number one um because if you're not primarily with the drummer's foot you know uh, i look at it that the bass is playing the one and the three and the guitar is playing the two and the four ah it's a very simplistic way of describing it um but i then always have taken into account the guitars the chords the guitar figures and a very something that was very important for me when i was writing bass lines was pat's melodies and i wrote the bass line primarily to complement the melody which was why i sound a little different than a lot of other people at play and when you were writing those bass lines did you realize that they were pretty unique at the time not when i was writing them because i was coming from the school of jack bruce and and whistle and mccartney and james jamerson and those guys kind of and Joe Osborne, those guys kind of did the same thing. Fit the bass line with the melody of the song, then within the changes and lock in with the drums. You know, when we started playing out a lot, I mean, Dennis and I were playing in a band in 78 called The Targets in New York. You know, where primarily our gig was in New York at Kenny's Castaways where the smithereens started in 1980 and when i heard other people play i knew that i was different you know because <clears throat> not a lot of guys played way up high on the in the neck in the third octave and um like i did first of all and weren't quite as melodic and were more simple basic and in 79 after one of those gigs with the targets i came off the stage we're walking back to the dressing room and uh the club manager don hill said hey somebody at the bar wants to talk to you and he he brought me over and it was mike this is doug lubon and uh, doug is the bass player on many doors records and he told me i really like your playing man and that was that was where I really started to believe in myself when Doug Lubon said that to me. So up to that point, how did you self you self identified obviously as you were a bass player, but you weren't sure where you fell in terms of the whole you know out there in the world. You weren't sure where you where you were. Yeah, how it sounds to other people. Right. And uh, also, <laughs> you know. I've had this inferiority complex because Dennis was really good when he was a kid before high school. And Jimmy was playing, uh, started playing then too. And then I came in and joined those guys. And uh, so I was behind those guys, you know, and <clears throat> Jimmy showed me a couple of songs. Uh, can't explain the who and it's my life by the animals and i i kind of took it from there and just used records as my teacher so i was had a little inferiority complex going 
and uh, that meeting, that time, I'm, Doug Lubon um, was so nice to me, really, really, you know, changed the way I looked at it, and had more belief in myself, and I also learned that uh, a positive word from you to someone else can really change their life. Every time I think of the band, I always think of you as the most confident guy on the stage. Like, you always look confident, man. <laughs> you, you're very self-assured, you. you know? Um, Thank like, you. To hear you say that is is kind of shocking to me because I I never would have thought of you as, as being feeling that way. Well, I don't feel that way about myself now, but my stage demeanor has always been somewhat aggressive. Mm -hmm. And... I come from the punk school, the 70s punk school, but also Pete Townsend. You know, I saw Pete Townsend play and I was like, that's the way I want to play my instrument, like Pete does, with his whole body, not just his hands. And uh, I pretty much uh, moving around on the stage and uh, beating out the time with my feet and all that stuff. I found that that kept my hands relaxed, you know, and helps me deal with, uh, I'm pretty much a shy person. So going up on a stage, I'm always nervous about it to this day. Right. You know, which is a good thing. I've heard people say that's a good thing, you know. Uh, but the uh, body movement and the, the kind of physical aggression that comes from Pete Townsend, but it also keeps my hands relaxed. I get my nervous energy out through my feet is the way I look at it. And therefore my hands are relaxed and they have to be to play well on anything. You have to have relaxed hands. If your hands are stiff and tense, you're not going to be playing in a legato fashion, first of all, which is very important that notes are connected and played smoothly. Phrases sound smooth, not like staccato notes, but legato where they, right. where they fall into each other. I mean, that's really legato playing is the really the key to playing that riff from blood and roses. I told a friend of mine once about you, I said, he's like part bass player, part boxer because you're, <laughs> 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 well, I did play hockey a lot. So, okay. You know, yeah. You're yeah. a physical guy. I mean, you, you know, you're a very physical guy, but now you've explained the fluidity of you as a player is keeping those hands loose. I've never heard anybody say that before. Yeah. It always looked to me like that's what Pete Townsend was doing. He was getting his, first of all, adrenaline, right? Rock and roll is, it's not like jazz. I love jazz, but rock and roll always gives me adrenaline and maybe an adrenaline overdose. And that's one way of releasing it. Did you, know? you, being a shy guy, did you like the fact that the stage was a, a place where you didn't have to be, you know, be shy or reserved? You could kind of just let it all out there on stage. That must have been a kind of a nice outlet for you. Well, yeah. It shortly got to the point where uh, the stage is where I want to be seen and want to be heard. Right. That's the only the only time in my life 
you know, where I want to be. I want to be it. I want the attention. Let's face it. Uh, if you don't want that, uh, you shouldn't be on a stage. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's showbiz, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was it about the bass that called you specifically? That's a very specific instrument. Uh, why the bass? Why Why was that the one that, that summoned you? I've always had an ear for the bass clef. I played accordion as a kid, which has those uh, silly buttons that you play with your left hand, but right. a great deal deal of fun to play. And I also have always loved doo-wop. And, uh, you know, doo-wop, as, you know, I played a little with Dion DiMucci, and he told me that the bass man was always the star of the group, not not the lead singer. Where we grew up, we had a great oldies station called CBS FM. WCBS FM came out of New York, and we all listened to that as much as we listened to the progressive contemporary station. I don't know, it was that cycle where we were in the, you know, kids in the late 60s and high school in, in the early 70s, and the 50s stuff was making her kind of a comeback. And a lot of it had to do with the film, American Graffiti. <clears throat> sure. And, um, yeah. But we, you know, we dug the four seasons from when we were little kids, which is like a, a later kind of doo-wop group, you know. So anyway, I had for, I had an ear for the bass from the bass singers. And, and in that sense, I've always considered my playing to be a voice. You know, I look at it as a voice. And um, that's where it comes from. Now, you mentioned punk rock, which is sort of, you know, the opposite of doo-wop in, in the sense that there's no, um, you know, musical facility isn't as important, whereas doo-wop is so precise. So when it came to punk rock, what was it that appealed to you? Was it the energy? Was it just the sheer velocity? Um, you know, did you ever see the Ramones? Did that have any kind of impression on you? Well, going to see the Ramones at CBGB's and the Dictators, we started going there, you know, Dennis, Jimmy, and me. We started going there in 76. And right through 76, 77, 78, those bands were great. I mean, I would never say that they did not have a lot of musical value and some great chops. If you try and play what Didi Ramon played, how he played in those days, your arm would fall off. Like you said, <laughs> it's energy, you know, but uh, it was it was like an example for everybody. Hey, you know, we could do this. You know, we can really do this. Look at these guys. And I'm not saying it was the Ramones were like a power pop band, you know, without the harmonies and the dictators, that element of fun, make people laugh too. Make them rock, but also make them laugh and be self-deprecating and don't take yourself too seriously. 
What about guys like Johnny Thunders? Man, Johnny Thunders was great. I used to go see the Heartbreakers at Max's. The Dolls were a little before my time as far as when I was able to go out. But Johnny had a great band called the Heartbreakers, and he died tragically young. There were two schools. There were CBGBs and Max's, and certain bands played at either club, but very few played at both. I mean, those guys, like the Heartbreakers, were so serious. They were. They, it didn't seem there was a lot of fun. Uh, the songs were great, but they were so serious. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that they, you know, they were feral, they were raw, and uh, you know, Johnny was like this sort of rabid band leader, um, who is, I think, very underrated as a player. I consider Johnny to be like a modern day Chuck Berry. Yeah was at the Chuck Berry school, you know, who, you know, was, if there is a king of rock and roll, it's Chuck Berry, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not putting down Elvis, I'm just saying. For you as a bass player, sitting in an audience, watching a band like, you know, the Heartbreakers or the Ramones, are you, what are you listening to as a, as a bass player? Are you listening to the drummer or are you listening to the bass player or both? Well, my ear always goes to the bass player first. Okay. But then I'm listening to the whole package and I'm, you know, trying to be transported by the music and get a feeling from the music, you know, which is to me the litmus test of good music. Does it give you a feeling? And those bands were a movement of, hey, let's get back to Chuck Berry. Let's get back to real rock and roll. Let's get back to Eddie Cochran. Uh, the progressive rock and the disco stuff had gotten so, so, I don't know. What's the word? Progressive rock <clears throat> with um, soloing and soloing and just intricate this and that. It was really turned me off. And uh, the New York City scene was... Let's get back to the roots of what this is supposed to be all about. It's called rock and roll. Right. You know? I like the sort of dirty sound of when music is a bit a bit dirty rather than polished. Very much so. Let's get back to Dave Davies. <laughs> right. Who invented right. it. You know? Yeah. Right. Or that, that dude from the Trogs. I mean, that band was pretty dirty, oh, too. Yeah. yeah. They were cool. Well, it's, funny, it's funny you mentioned that, Alex, because the Trogs in the late 70s came over and played in New York City in the punk clubs. Oh, no way. And I didn't all, know that. And all the punk, oh yeah, all the punk kids would go see the Trogs. And it was the original lineup. And the guitar player's name is Chris Britton. And seeing the Trogs in 1978, you might as well have been in London in 66. Because they did not change at all. It was really something. Yeah. That's cool that you saw them. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that they did that, but I, I bet they fit right in. They certainly did, and they, yeah. they took advantage of it. You, you could find Trog's records live at Max's Kansas City. There's one right there. That's great. When you first picked up a bass guitar, how long did it take for you to know, this is my instrument, this feels good? Well... I knew pretty quickly 
first of all, I had big hands, which really helps. You know, I had really big hands and uh, strong hands. And that, the physical thing about playing the bass is really important. And, you know, Jimmy played guitar and Dennis played drums. They were my two best friends. So it was just natural that I, if I wanted to hang out with those guys, yeah. I had to play the bass. You know? <laughs> and, um, I really learned from, uh, at that point, I was really learning from the left hands of Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Fats Domino, the way they played the bass on the piano on like, for example, Great Balls of Fire, uh, those riffs, Lucille, those riffs that are in those tunes. And, uh, it was them and Paul McCartney that I studied. Uh, teaching yourself an instrument is the big thing is knowing what you should, uh, who you should listen to and what your goal should be, what you should try and do. I don't know why I knew, but I knew that if I could play these rock and roll riffs like bubble 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 like that, but without moving my hand up and down the neck, but just playing it in one position, I knew that the economy of movement was really important and re directly related to the speed with which I could play. And uh, I learned and really worked hard on, I saw her standing there and playing it exactly as Paul played it. Now, keep in mind, Paul was playing a Hofner, which is a very, very much smaller neck than I was using a, a Rickenbacker was the first good bass that I had. But I knew, somehow I knew what to study. Basically, I was studying the guy's from the bands that we all liked and I wanted to play with them and play like them, you know, but Paul's a great guy to study, especially the early, starting with the early Beatles records. Cause he, he does something called what I call tuba bass. Now, like you can imagine a tuba playing some of those parts and like love me do. And it's pretty much the use of fifths, either the higher fifth or the lower fifth, where you're going boom, 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 or boom, 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 boom. Those are the fifths. And it sounds like a tuba on those early records when Paul uses that uh, device, which is, you know, just perfect because the tuba was the bass in the early jazz bands before stand-up basses started to be used on those records. And to this day, a lot of jazz bass players in traditional jazz groups double on tuba. And um, it gives you a very basic rudimentary understanding of what your function in the band should be. And I guess I'm describing how to be a real bass player is how I say it. So I started there 
I never played guitar. And so I'm not a guitar player who went to the bass. Right. Um, that, that had guitar foundation. I'm a bass player that started off with a bass foundation and built on that. So I can hear hear it in uh, pure bass players when I hear guys play, you know, that it comes down to the choice of notes. A bass player will probably choose a lot of different notes than a guitar player will choose. How how old were you when all of this started to make sense to you? Because it, what you're describing is is you were intellectualizing pretty young about music theory, is what it sounds like. I was, but I was not making an effort to do that, you know. And I did <laughs> I did not know that I was doing that. It all right. seeming like common sense to me, and uh, probably my uh, playing the accordion as a kid really really helped in that regard but i was about i started when i was 17 so it was between 17 starting at 17 and then i got my first good bass when i was you know about 18 i started off on a 15 dollar you know monstrosity that you couldn't keep in tune and the action was so bad, the strings are like one inch above the frets when you went up the fretboard, you know. <laughs> is 17, is that late? Or is that, do you think that's a good age to, for, you know, a lot of our listeners are aspiring musicians. Do you, do you think that's a good age to start? Um, because for sports, that would be late, right? Like if you pick up soccer at 17, that's, you, you've, you've waited quite a bit. Yeah. Um. It's hard to say. I think it comes down to the individual. Uh, as I previously said, Dennis and Jimmy were playing on their instruments before I was uh, and were good. And I had to get good to fit in with them. That was like a naturally unspoken type of uh, pressure that was on me that I wanted to play with those guys. So I had to get good in a hurry. But, you know, the musical training in youth, you can start off on one instrument. It doesn't matter. You can go to another instrument later in life, and you'll you'll have a basic theoretical understanding of the instrument, especially if you've played piano when you were young. Yeah, that seems foundational. Very much so. Right. Um, yeah. What about Dennis as a drummer? What what is Dennis's great strength? Do you think as a player, and he seemed to have it pretty early. He has almost a photographic mind for music, and he he's naturally, as I was talking about, tuba bass being the basic bottom line function of what you do to anchor a group. Well, a drummer is the timekeeper. You know. Dennis always has had an excellent sense of time. Uh, within this, within the tune, there's no lower and faster, and there's no speeding up or slowing down. And uh, also, the tempo that you uh, arrive at when you're learning a song and figuring things out, he will 
That tempo is locked into his brain. So the next time you play that tune, you'll be at that tempo. Uh, that, and he's he plays his drums in a musical fashion, not in a stiff mechanical fashion. He's very, very smooth. While doing all that basic function as a, the metronome function, right? But he does it in a way that's like melted butter. And he has a great sense of where to fill, where to play fills, and where to tighten things back up. And he swings. He has a great, uh, to me, the hi-hat is almost one thing that separates rock and roll drummers from hard rock or other. His use of the hi-hat is is very, very, it comes from Ringo. But he's he's wonderful on his hi-hat. And right from the beginning, I always wanted to stand on stage left. Uh, so I was getting getting the hi-hat, you know, right in my ear. And I, <laughs> I'd be right there with the hi-hat and the snare, you know, because the hi-hat is really what makes you want to dance the way he plays it. And do you guys have a sort of, the two of you together have a kind of um, a, an unspoken rhythm where you guys can start jamming around and it, and it just feels right. Like you can, you can improvise. You don't have to even, even sort of narrate what's happening verbally. Well, we pretty much never do. And those are some of my favorite moments. They like make my night when we'll be hitting a tune and both, it's like telepathy. It's musical telepathy. Right. You know, where you just do the same thing at the same time, never having discussed it before. He will play a fill and I'll play a pattern that matches that fill without even having pre-planned it whatsoever. Those things happen. Those are the really gratifying moments. Yeah, because it seems to me like that's a rare combination. You know, you could you could play with 50 different drummers and never have that. Oh, it comes from me learning how to play with him. Right, right. You know, so we share this vocabulary, and Jimmy's right there, you know, with this. But we, we all have this vocabulary because we grew up playing together, and we figured it out in Jimmy's garage. And here we are. All these years later, yeah, still playing together, and it's a very, very rare thing. Uh, I say you can't, you can't get this at Juilliard. Then it's fair to say that the connective tissue of the Smithereens is friendship and childhood. It is. Yeah, it is very much so. I know Dennis since fifth grade, and Jimmy since second grade. It's funny, I knew each of those guys separately before they knew each other. Jimmy and Dennis met in high school, freshman year of high school. And Jimmy had a Beatles-esque haircut, and he had Who stickers on his notebook. And right away, <laughs> Dennis went went to him, this is the guy, I'm, I've got to play with this. You play guitar? No way. Let's get together, you know? Right away, he knew they were coming from the same school. 
the school is very important. You know, what bands turn you on? What bands do you love? People are always going to play together better if they have the same deep love of of the same groups. Right. Because it's your musical vocabulary. You're all speaking the same language. I would challenge my listeners out there to think about their grade school friends. And number one, some people don't even know their grade school friends anymore. People from, you know, second and fifth grade, um, let alone uh, work with them. <laughs> that's like, that's a pretty cool Alex, thing. Alex, it's a gift, you know. Yeah. Uh, now at my age, I get very, very emotional about that. Let me tell yeah. you. You know, it's a, it's an emotional thing, you know. I mean, I live out here, and then I spend a lot of time on the road and go, getting together with those guys at gigs. And believe me, it would be hard to do if it wasn't for that. Hey, you know what? I'm gonna go. We're going to be in the van for five hours. We're going to drive to Boston. We're going to laugh our asses off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we still do imitations of our teachers and, all this stuff that this history we have uh, before the band. And then of course the band history too, but it's that stuff. Dennis and I were writing plays together in uh, eighth grade. And then in high school, making movies and Jimmy too, making movies with us in high school. And it was, you know, uh, we were collaborating in an artistic sense. Even then, Dennis and I had a uh, we we wrote articles for our high school paper together about pro wrestling at the Garden, you know, like <laughs> the weird, <laughs> the funny looking ring announcer and the weird yeah. people who went to the matches because you know wrestling then was still like it was in the fifties, you know, you had like. Very, very big fat guys and really mean guys that use racial slurs to bait their opponents and in interviews and it was great, let me tell you. Yeah, it was theater. It was. It was. But we used to write about that, you know, and uh... bands that aren't even related but have this shared history. Um, it seems like that is a real bond that just you know, that can't be broken. That is like, you know, that is some some priceless stuff. And it's incredibly rare. Oh, man. You know, it. some cliches are very true, you know. <laughs> yeah. And one of them is a band is like a marriage, you know, or a band is like a family, you know. And so with us man that is very very true and the the thing is that somehow pat mystically fit in with us you know our, our sense of humor everything it just we just hit it off right from the very beginning with pat and then it ended up like i mean very soon it was just like he went to carteret high school with us even though he is from Scotch Plains, a few towns over, you know, but we had that shared background of TV in the 60s, McHale's Navy, Combat, 
and a lot of Little Rascals and Abbott and Costello reruns. So we, we had all that as in common, and it made, made the friendship just bloom right away. I got your letter in the mail the other day. You had to say that you were leaving me. I can't believe the words I've read. I think that I'd rather be dead than to be this lonely. Oh, Lane, I think this love affair has gone much too far. Oh, Lane, we both could work it out. Please tell me where you are, Elaine. I've tried and tried with all my heart to decide to depart and leave me standing here. Come to your senses, I need you. Please don't tell me that we're through. I need your love, my dear. Oh, Lane, I think this love affair has gone much too far. Oh, Lane, we both could work it out. Please tell me where you are. Oh, Lane, my whole world's in little pieces from the day that we met. I just can't forget. I know that someday we'll both be together, but right now I really can't say I got your letter in the mail the other day. You had to say that you were leaving me. I can't believe the words I've read I think that I'd rather be dead than to be this lonely Oh, Lane, I think this love affair has gone much too far Oh, Lane, we both could work it out Please tell me where you are Oh, Lane, my whole world's in little pieces From the day that we met, I just can't forget I know that someday we'll both be together But right now I really can't say Elaine I mean, I wish Pat was here, you know, yeah. I wish he was here every day. I think about him and, and wish he was here, you know, but what's really been a blessing to us is uh, Marshall Crenshaw and Robin Wilson. I mean, you know, two legendary guys in their own right. Um, did it surprise you? I'm sure it didn't, that it took two voices to uh, to fill in for Pat's one. That's the whole thing. Yeah. They're not trying to do that, you right. know. They're they're being themselves and interpreting Pat's songs the way they would sing it without trying to do Pat, you know, cuz that's something the three of us could never never handle. We wouldn't we wouldn't do a talent search to try and find the greatest Pat imitator. That's just not something that would Hey, we're from we're from Carteret, New Jersey. There's not a bone of pretense in our body, you know. Right. But I was thinking about Wilson and Crenshaw, such different singers, so different than Pat. But I was thinking, what is the common denominator? And I thought, and again, I'm not a musician, Mike, obviously, but from the way I'm I'm describing music, but those three guys, they have a kind of uh, ripple in their voice. 
that kind of just rolls. And though the voices are all different, that ripple uh, is there and it's, and it's beautiful. I've heard, I've listened to both of them do it and it's, it, it's very unique and very beautiful. And it must be, it must be cool to um, have those songs alive in that way through their interpretation. Well, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's like a responsibility almost that we're keeping Pat's songs alive. And I know somewhere he likes what we're doing because we're not letting him be forgotten. We're not letting him just drift away. We're keeping him alive. He li- you know, songwriters live in their songs. If, if you write songs and they're so honest that you're putting your guts, your innermost feelings that you won't even talk about, but they go into songs. And I look at it as a certain essence of that person who wrote that song is within that song. Mm. And I, I feel, I feel that way about Pat's songs that his, a very big part of Pat is in those songs. And, you know, it's, it's emotional for me. It really is. Yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a very profound um, loss and those songs, man, God, they're just evergreen. I've listened to them and I've listened to your discography thousands of times. And like Chuck Berry, who you were mentioning before, they just they just always sound fresh to me. They're just eternal great songs, you know, eternally great songs. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Tell me about um, your relationship with Marshall Crenshaw. We have the same roots as Marshall. Uh, Marshall is like Dennis. <laughs> he knows every song ever written and can play it in any key. <laughs> you know, that's what I say. The sound checks are a blast, you know, and yeah. we we get material for the set because like so sad about us by the who and, uh, you know, uh, no matter what bad finger uh, song. And that's interesting because we do no matter what with Robin as well and it's when we play with robin it's a three-piece so we're like back in jimmy's garage as a three-piece yeah uh and marshall's playing guitar really great guitar player ben vaughn told me that he ran into marshall crenshaw a couple of years ago and marshall he was like hey what are you doing and marshall crenshaw was like oh i just came back from my guitar lesson and and ben vaughn was like yeah i should i should probably be doing that too (laughs) (laughs) well that's another thing I admire about Marshall and uh, immodestly I say it about myself is that I always want to feel growth and hear growth. And that that's the drive. That's pure music, musicians drive right there to always want to keep going up and up and up and up, at least in your mind, your criteria for your own playing, increase your vocabulary be more fluid and you can always learn something. Right. I've read a lot of biographies on the great jazz musicians like Coleman Hawkins. These guys never lost that desire. Never. I mean, they studied classical music. They studied other people who came before them and 
They studied when Bebop was new. They studied Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. And it was a never-ending, lifelong journey that they were on. And that's that's why Marshall was doing that, you know, drive. Keeping that in mind, what is your relationship to the bass guitar now? I mean, how would you describe yourself as a player compared to all those years ago? Um, and I'm really kind of curious if you are someone who plays every day, um, you know, your discipline and your willingness to sort of like, you know, shut yourself in a room and, and, and practice. What, what is your, what is your sort of daily routine like with your, with your instrument? Uh, I'm a great believer in that. You know, I, I, I go back to the jazz greats and they practiced every day, then played all night and then went and jammed all night and then got up and they, they, you know, I play scales now. I never used to do that just to start my practice. And then I have, I want to play for an hour each day and I want to get off when I practice at a certain point, I want to be losing myself and just really getting off on it in my own bedroom, you know, and I feel if that happens, it happened today <laughs> when I was practicing, there's certain bass players who I consider to be a big part of me, my vocabulary that I always still listen to and practice along with. Today, one was Carl Radel, who's on early Eric Clapton records and Derek and the Dominoes records. Um, very, very unknown and underrated. Truly great. And he's from the Jamerson school. James Jamerson is the greatest to me. And I always have certain days where I do my Motown routine. And my Motown routine is about 20 songs uh, that I uh, like to keep in my uh, vocabulary those things that James does in those songs. And then I have a, I'll do a practice where I'm going for stamina. So I'll play along with Ramon's records and sixties, uh, uh, nuggets such, uh, like punk bands from the sixties. Cause I always want to keep up my, I never want to run out of gas. I never want my fingers to run out of gas right. or not be able to execute what goes into my mind. What's happened with me over these years is that that barrier between my brain and the fingers gets lower and lower and lower. So when something comes into my mind, I can play it. It just happens. I don't think about it. My hand knows its way around the neck, you know, and I, I play with feeling and not thought. Uh, an interesting thing about my playing is that when I'm playing the songs and the bass lines that I wrote, uh, it's what's very important to me is the fingering that I play those with the same fingering. You don't change your fingering every time you play a tune. You use the same fingering. What happens when you do that? Muscle memory. And that's when you really can have fun. That's when the fun begins and the work stops. If you have to be on a stage in front of people thinking about what you're doing and every riff you're playing and every run, you don't 
you're, you're too cerebral. But once the muscle memory sets, sets in, you can just let it ride and let it go, you know. That's my goal, and that's what I try and do. But that's where the amount of practice that I do comes in, is that that daily, it's not a grind, it's fun. I mean, one great thing that happened to me when the band became successful, uh, first album, especially for you, and I could quit my day job, I made a decision then and there, look how lucky I am. I can practice a lot every day. That's one of the great things about being a professional musician and getting paid for it is that you can practice more than someone that has to go in and work a nine to five job and commute and come home tired and have dinner. And you're not at your best, you're tired. But I like to practice in the morning when my mind, when I'm really fresh, when my mind is fresh, I always play better in the morning as far as practicing goes. I can relate to what you're saying because when I was working on my first book, someone said to me, what's the hardest part about writing it? And I said, having to go to work and not being able to write it. That's the hardest part. Oh, that's the same thing. That's what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. And I I didn't, you know, I didn't respect or uh, people who rest on their laurels and they don't practice. Hey, I made a record. It got on the radio. I don't have to practice anymore. You know, there was only <laughs> one Keith Moon, right? Keith Moon didn't practice. The legend goes anyway. I find it hard to believe. <laughs> but there's, there's, if if you have success in your career and you don't use it to turn yourself and grow it into a better musician increase your vocabulary let your hand know its way around the neck without you without you even having to think about it you know i play with a lot of slides so it's very important you know i play my instrument like a stringed instrument so as much as i was talking about the importance of keeping your hand in one position then there are boom boom that kind of stuff I'm I'm all about that, and you know I got that from Paul and John Dalton, the Kinks bass player. It's funny because I I interview, you know, bands like everyone from Meat Beat Manifesto to XTC to you, and everyone mentions um, the Beatles. I mean, it's funny how Paul McCartney and Ringo they both come up so much in terms of being such major influences. I mean, not that it's that surprising. I mean, it's the Beatles for God's sakes, but, um, but Paul McCartney as a bass player, as a practitioner of the bass, um, he comes up a lot for the bass players that I interview. Oh, um, he's not underrated to me. To me, he's one of the greats. And, you know, Paul takes great, great pride in his bass playing. Like I was at a, a a release party when he put out one of his records, I don't know, about 10 years ago. Dennis and I got invited. It was really great. And Paul went up and took questions from people. And then at the end of the, no more questions. Oh, well, no one asked me what I would ask me (laughs) about my bass playing. You know, (laughs) nobody asked him about his bass playing. Uh, It was all about it naturally. 
his songwriting, his partnership with John, and his voice. I think Paul was a great bass player right from the beginning because he had a great understanding of the bass clef that he got from playing piano as a kid. This interview is the first time I've ever heard of Jamerson. Now I have to go look him up. Um, well, he's the he's the studio. He's the guy on just about 90% of the Motown records. And it's phenomenal. To me, they stand out as... I call good bass playing songs. Play a song within a song. That's my school. And James is the king of that. His bass lines stand out as songs unto themselves. His ability to get around and play really, really quick little things, you know. Yeah. What about players that don't play anything like you? Um, take a couple people. I'll throw a few names at you. And I'm just curious to know how you, not not what you think of them, but how you, how you listen to them um, because they're so wildly different. But then maybe you can correct me and tell me if they really are that different. But people like Flea or Mark King, you know, or Les Claypool. How do you regard guys like that? And it's a totally different style, <laughs> right? I regard them with awe. <laughs> oh, that's, that's how I regard them. Yeah. And I think Flea also, you know, his um, the flashiness of his playing uh, uh, obscures his great playing as a melodic bass player and playing great melodic bass lines, songs within songs, and also his great tone. He got it, had a great tone is, is so important in any instrument. I love Flea's tone when he's just playing, let's just call it plain bass. Okay. No slapping and, you know, and all that other stuff. I really admire Flea, you know, Les Claypool is just in another world for me. You know, he's like a great jazz bass player, like Jocko Pistorius, you know, it's, it's I, I look at those guys with awe. I, I you know, it's I don't play that way, but you know what? Uh I'm myself and they are themselves. And that's really important to know when you, you arrive at a style, you know, uh I think it's uh, important to listen to other people even that are out of your style because you never know What's going to inform you, your vocabulary? And something just might pop out that you heard Les Claypool do. Right. It just might pop out at any time because, to me, everything goes in your brain and it becomes your musical fuel, your soup, that comes out through your hand, you know. Yeah, that's cool. And I like, I like hearing – you seem like you're open to any style of music. I don't know what you know if you ever got into those metal players, but there were some amazing bass players in '80s metal that never get talked about. But um... I usually feel sorry for metal bass players because many of them have to play in a very rudimentary fashion because there's so much going on with the guitars all the time. Right. You know, I consider myself lucky to be in the context of my band where the guys let me happen in certain points of tunes, you know, and it was, was cause, Hey, we all loved Entwistle and, and Paul and Jamerson. It's like, 
we got that the bass is a melodic instrument as well as a rhythmic instrument. Do you feel that the bass is, it's like a life, literally a lifelong pursuit to understand something that almost can't be understood? Like, it's like chess, like you almost can't master it. Um, And is that part of the allure? Well, yeah. Not only the bass, but any instrument, if you're really serious about playing it, you never really get to where you want to be. There's always that next thing. There's an, there's always that the new recording that you're going to make where you want to do something that sounds different than you've ever played before. Uh, I listen to a lot of, of the classic great jazz bass players now. Uh, that's part of my regimen too, is uh, playing along with with jazz records, but not in an improvisational way, although I'm I'm a way better improviser than I ever was, which I'm really happy about that. And I'm very confident about it. I never was before. But uh, the jazz blues progressions, which are more complex than just the same one, four, five rock blues progression, and the way they turn it around, I'm really focused. I focus on turning things around and like at the end of bridges and getting back to the verse uh the the phrases that are used to turn to turn chords back around to get back to the key that that the song is in but the thing that I really am another thing I'm pleased with myself sorry is walking is listening to these great jazz bass players like Ray Brown that these guys walk throughout entire songs, but they never do it the same way twice. They always make it a little different every single time. It's almost like if you listen to a guy like Ray Brown, within a tune, even though he is not soloing, he is improvising because he's got all these choices of whether to go down, up, uh, and he's within the scale and he's walking. Uh, and not stay, staying on the same note. Like he's not going bum, 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 bum. He's going bum, boom, 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 boom. You know, those kind of things that uh, I'm studying now and I, I'm able to get into my playing a little bit more. That's why I was, I'm looking forward to new recordings, you know, because of this, these kind of things we're talking about. Is there talk of new recording? Is, it, is that what you're thinking of the next step would be? Yeah. Yeah, well, we uh we have something in the archives that people are going to love. I can't cool. say what it is right now. Uh but then we want to make a new record. We have songs uh that we've been writing and we were planning on doing this with Pat, you know. Uh and it didn't it was not meant to be which is yeah. one of my great, I'm saddened by that greatly because I was so looking forward to getting back in the studio with Pat, you know. But yeah. anyway, we're going to take this material and try and do something with it in the context of uh, what we're doing now, like with Marshall and some with Robin. That's cool. Um, and so it sounds like there's the archive project and then there's new songs. That's correct. That's yeah. cool. I mean, and it's... there's a couple of Pat 
Pat put out a few solo albums, and uh, there were ones that were like were meant for us that we ended up not recording for one reason or another, and we were really looking forward to getting back in and doing. Well, to me, the definitive version of a Pat song is with Jimmy, Dennis, and me backing it. You know. Yeah, and I think that. What makes me excited is that you, you know, you feel more creatively alive than ever. And you are, you know, you're always challenging yourself and there's new stuff on the horizon. I mean, how does it get better than that? I and mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Well, here's the most important thing, Alex. You know what? When I practice, I'm having fun. I, yeah. I still like it. I'm I'm back in my dad's basement listening and trying to do Jerry Lee Lewis riffs on the bass. I mean, I still like that solitude. I like the expression woodshedding. That's a great expression, you know? Yeah. And I still like woodshedding. And I feel I'm lucky that I do because a lot of guys my age who've been playing as long as I have get jaded or they don't have the time or people don't have don't have the time to woodshed and make a study of their instrument and keep their chops up. I love I love the term chops, you know. It comes from a trumpeter's lips. Literally his chops, you know. Trumpeters always going back to I mean Louis Armstrong had terrible problems with his lips. And the only way to keep your chops up was to play all the time. So what are my chops that I have to keep up? First of all, my calluses, very, very important. Uh, on my two plucking fingers and uh, on my four fingers, on my left hand, they're heavily calloused. I mean, they feel like I have leather, a leather coating on the end of my fingers, you know. But those must be maintained. You know, otherwise, if you you lose your calluses from not playing, first of all, it hurts <laughs> when you play again. Uh, second of all, you could rub up a blister, and that would be a nightmare. You wouldn't have to, you wouldn't be able to play. I've used a pick on certain songs because I wanted to get a particular sound on that song. Like a girl like you is a picked bass, uh, which you know I had to learn that because I'm not didn't come naturally to me because I'm not a guitar player or wasn't a guitar player. And the guy that really, that I really studied for pick bass was Graham Maybe, is Graham Maybe, who uh, played on all the, on the Joe Jackson records. Yeah. That really, Graham's playing really, really just turned me on when I was teaching myself how to play. And it was also, hey, look, this is lead bass. This is up in the forefront here. And his his technique with a pick really, really meant a lot to me. Tell me a little bit about the Hall of Fame um, before I let you go. I I'm curious to know how that feels because um, that's pretty damn cool, Mike. <laughs> that's a cool thing. It's It's really, you know, it's an honor. Uh, it's a very, it's a very moving thing because like, as we've been discussing, 
you got these three childhood friends who are going to be inducted together, you know. And, uh, of course, here's another another time where I really, really miss Pat because he would just love this. And, you know, we had a great – we had we had a band before we met Pat. You know, we were playing. But Pat gave us those songs in that voice. There are many people who are great on their instruments but just don't have <laughs> – that kind of material and and that kind of that kind of uh unique vocal that he provided you know but when you look at the list of the musicians that are in there you know it's i just shake my head and go and how am I, how am i going to keep it together that night man <laughs> that's going to be something you know it's it's uh and we're playing at the Stone Pony the night before. Oh, that's cool. We should be raucous. It should be nuts. I, yeah. I just, it's going to be nuts. It's going to be a celebration. And and then, uh, you know, the next night, hey, it starts with Frank Sinatra, you know. I mean, I'm not putting us in Frank's class or anything like that. But he's, he's the first in the uh, musical performing arts. And then there's Dizzy Gillespie and Sarah Vaughn. And then there's the Four Seasons and there's Bruce. And there, there's others too. I mean, we're we're going to be inducted with Southside Johnny. Right. Who's, and that's a great thing. It's very fitting because, you know, Johnny was very good to us early in our career. When we'd, we'd hook up out on the road. We'd be on the same bill or in, doing, playing in colleges and, you know, Johnny and, and those guys would come back and it was, you know, Johnny's uh, a generation older than us. So it was like, uh, you know, the big brother from Jersey coming back and putting his arm around you saying, I dig what you guys are doing and I'm proud of you, you know. And that's what Johnny did for us back in those days. So now we're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, the State Hall of Fame with him. and it's It's just wonderful. It's a great story. Yeah, it's a big deal, man, and it's and congratulations to you on that because that is beautiful. It's a beautiful, um, you know, it's a beautiful moment in your career. You know, and it's gonna it's gonna last. My kids are gonna have that legacy of their dad. That makes me very very proud. Their dad and his friends, you know, their uncles, you know. Uh, It's it's a beautiful thing. You know, I just wish my own dad was still around. He'd be floating. He'd be he'd be on cloud nine. His feet wouldn't be touching the ground. He'd be so proud, you know. Was your dad uh, originally from New Jersey? Oh yeah, from the same hometown. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. And your mom's still around? Nope, she's not around either. So that's another thing. Well, I think those people will be thought of uh, very deeply that evening, Mike. Oh, they will. Yeah, certainly will. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the Hall of Fame and uh, a tremendous honor. And congratulations on 40 years of the Smithereens. And, uh, and thank you for taking the time to chat with me about music, about bass playing. I learned a lot. And, uh, and it was a blast, man. I really enjoyed it, Alex. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's unusual uh, to, have, uh, to speak with someone at such length about 
your bass playing about you know the instrument and uh you know i'm i'm really into my instrument and i really thank you for taking such interest in me thank you He's a sweet and thoughtful guy, that Mike Maceros. Uh, loved that chat. Loved that band. Congratulations to the Smithereens for 40 years of existence and their induction into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. Very cool. Congratulations, lads. Very well done. Uh, you know what's great about having an intern uh, like the one I have named Hannah, who's staring at me right now? Uh, they always like to tell you when you screwed up. And uh, Hannah told me, halfway through the show, that she thought I pronounced Mike's last name incorrectly at the opening of the program. So we, uh, we emailed Mike's wife, and uh, we asked her, and she confirmed I did indeed make a mistake. Uh, the last name is Maceros, not Masaros, or uh, however else I did it at the beginning of the program. I can't remember, but I'm sure I screwed it up. There, Hannah, are you happy? <laughs> you are, aren't you? And you're getting school credit. Uh, Mike Maceros. There we go. Uh, problem amended. Uh, smithereens. All Smithereens information can be found at officialsmithereens.com. Go there. Find out where they're playing. Go see them. They are fantastic. As for me, I'm not fantastic. I screw up people's last names. But you can still find me, alexgreenonline.com, or follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor, or follow me on Instagram, Ember's Podcast, or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Now, I don't know where you get your podcast, but guess what? Wherever you get them, we are there. Stitcher, Last.fm, Google Play, Apple Music, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. We are everywhere. So, you know, go to the platform where you're most comfortable and uh, subscribe. Leave us a review. Uh, these things go a long way these days, and we thank you in advance for taking the time to do that. Okay? All right, let's close the show off with some pretty dazzling bass playing from Mr. Maceros. This is Smithereens, Blood and Roses. Enjoy it right here, and I'll see you next time on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. It was long ago. It seemed like yesterday.